Well, good morning, Love Chapel Hill. Like Maggie, oh, good morning to you back there. Like Maggie said, my name is Riley David. I am on staff with a campus ministry here at UNC called Crew, but I've actually been part of the Love Chapel Hill family going back to when I was a junior in college here at Carolina. I was at a Bible study when one of my friends brings his pastor, and this guy shows up who's very smiley with salt and pepper hair, some Air Jordans on his feet. And of course, we know that to be Pastor Matt, but he's someone I hit it off immediately with and was part of the church after that, but graduated from here back in 2015. And my wife and I, we moved away for about five years, then came back a year ago. So it's been good to get reconnected and to meet some of y'all. And if I haven't met you yet, look forward to doing that now that we're back in person. So anyway, it's a great honor. It's a privilege. It's a joy just to get to teach from God's word today. And I'm really excited just to see what he has to say to us. But before we go further, I do want to start us out with some prayer. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have allowed us to gather here this morning. Uh, you've brought us here together from different backgrounds, different upbringings, and, but you have still united us under your Son. So we praise you for this time to worship together, to study your word, and I just ask that your Spirit would speak through me, that it would completely fill me and pour out, uh, that these words would be your words, not mine. In your name we pray, amen. Well, before we get into the message this morning, I want to get a little bit of participation. Just have a, a, a quick question, real simple question, but I'll need a show of hands. If you're watching at home or in the car, running wherever you are, uh, driving maybe, you can participate as well, but just need a quick show of hands. So who here enjoys confrontation? All right, that's about what I expected. Maybe one or two hands went up. But I think the vast majority of us, we don't just find confrontation mildly unpleasant. Instead, we feel repulsed by it. There's something so uncomfortable and so grating and so tense about confrontation that it just kind of makes us want to walk the opposite direction as soon as it rises, even for the potential for it to rise, if that, if that comes up. And I know some of you who raised your hands, maybe you enjoy a good debate. Maybe you embrace confrontation a little bit. Some Enneagram mates out there, I don't know if that's tracking. But even if you don't completely resonate with this, stick with me. I still think God has something to say to you. But I think for the, the vast majority of us, when confrontation comes up, our natural inclination is to go the opposite direction to an instance when I was a student here where one of my housemates, he, he said something that, he did something kind of offensive towards me, and I felt like, okay, I need to say something to him. I, I, I need to confront him on this. And I just vividly remember walking down to his room and kind of standing at the threshold of the entrance and just fumbling over my words, not knowing what to say, kind of beating around the bush. And eventually he just looks at me and says, are you going to tell me what, what's on your mind or are we just going to sit here and look at each other? And, and so we, we were able to reconcile, of course, but I, I think it's just so natural for us to feel this way. And even with confrontation, what's even harder than when we're the offended party, we're the hurt party, is confronting others on issues of identity. Like when someone doesn't behave how we think they should behave, or, or they don't believe what we think they should believe. And I think that's why when issues of religion or faith, when those come up, most of us, we prefer to just keep quiet and avoid disagreement. But the character we will study this morning, he doesn't shy away from difficult conversations. In fact, he leans into 
even if it's with people who hold some authority over him. So this morning we will, we will study the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. And so some of you who've, who've been around church for a while, if you grew up going to church, you probably know that name, John the Baptist. Pretty famous figure. You probably know he lived in the wilderness, ate locusts, wore animal skins. But I would guess maybe even if you're familiar with his story, you don't exactly know why he's called John the Baptist. I think in the South, in America, in our context, we probably usually associate that with Southern Baptists, but John the Baptist, he has nothing to do with Southern Baptists or really any sort of denomination. In fact, I think a more accurate translation of the Greek would be to call him John the Baptizer. And just as his name indicates, you could say his name was his mission. A a large part of his ministry, it entailed baptizing people. So we're going to start looking at at the Gospel of John just to get a little bit more insight into his role. So it's on the outline on the website if you want to turn there. If you have a Bible, you can flip up into John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So it says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, to tell about the light so everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. So the Apostle John, he gives us this background on John the baptizer. So two different Johns in case that wasn't clear. But what the Apostle John tells us is that God assigned John. He commissioned him to stand as a witness to this light. That is Jesus. So John, his ministry on earth, it starts before Jesus' ministry. And his job is to prepare the way, to prepare the hearts of the Israelites to receive their Messiah. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you see that word Messiah is repeated. It talks about Israel being God's people. It says they will receive blessing. But John had to prepare their hearts because there was a lot of misconceptions on what the Messiah would be in his day. Uh, Most of these people who, who John was preaching to, they did not realize that the coming Messiah, Jesus, would be a savior in a spiritual sense. And so that's where this practice of baptism comes into play because baptism, it symbolizes a new start, a new creation. You know, you go down in the water and you come up clean from shortcomings, from flaws, from sins. Even like we do here in that dirty lake down by Merit, he still symbolizes going into it and coming up clean. So that baptism comes into play. And so John the baptizer, his audience, they're primarily Jewish And again, keeping their history in mind, much of his audience, they didn't realize that there was this need for being made new, to become a new creation. A lot of them, they thought their heritage as Israelites, that that earned them favor on its own in God's eyes. And uh, if that sounds a little off to you, you're right to feel that way. We know God, he does not really care about the, the outer appearances and about status. And so with that in mind, it's no wonder that many of the Gospels, they spend time showing John dismantling this view. And so that's where we'll pick up today. We'll, we'll mainly be in the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 3, that, this passage is also on the, on the outline on, on, online as well. But we'll start in Luke chapter 3, and we'll just go ahead and look at verses 1 through 3. So it says, it was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler, was ruler over Iterea and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. 
At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. So Luke, he gives a little bit more historical and geographical context than the Gospel of John does, and he provides plenty of tough names to say, but after that, he goes right into just sharing a similar summary to what John said was John the Baptizer's, his, his mission. It's to preach this message of repentance, to baptize people, to get them ready for this coming forgiveness through Jesus. But as Luke, as, as his account continues, it takes a bit of a turn. And as we read that, it may make you a little bit unsettled, just as you read it or you visualize even your own confrontation. Because John, he won't really hold anything back. So if you want to look back at the passage, we'll pick up in verse 7. So skip down to verse 7. It says, When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can, create, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So, as you can see, John, he doesn't really waste much time before he starts spitting something bold to these listeners. And you got to think, this is catching this, them off guard. It catches us off guard, especially because you notice these folks, they're tuning into John's message. They're listening to what he has to say. It even says here they're coming to be baptized. So what's the problem here? Well, I think when you zero in on that phrase, brood of snakes or brood of vipers, poisonous snakes, those are other translations. You see, that's not really a nice greeting. But what John does here is he compares his listeners to snakes in the wilderness. And similar to how a viper might flee a brush fire, these Israelites, they're trying to flee God's judgment, but they're doing so just by seeking baptism. And again, that might sound fine on the surface. John's words, it contradicts that notion. He's picking up on some sort of performative actions here. Through John's words, we see that his listeners, they're they're focused on comfort but not change. And they want safety without salvation. And they're looking for their reputation as opposed to repentance. And they focus on these outer circumstances and their status, their appearance. But John's not going to let them have that. He he speaks pretty plainly when he tells them, produce fruit. Actually give God control of your life. Let him use your actions. He says, produce fruit. He even says, do not begin to say we're safe because we're descendants of Abraham. Do not begin to say. Do not begin to say. And, and he's communicating that their family tree earns them no special treatment. But it makes me wonder, like, what would, what would John say to us today in 21st century America? If he was saying, do not begin to say. I think for Gen Z, do not begin to say, follow enough Christian influencers, I'm good. Or for a millennial like me, do, do not begin to say, I've deconstructed, I've reconstructed, I know what I believe, I'm good. Maybe for some of the boomers out there, he's saying, do not begin to say, I went to some Billy Graham rallies, are good. Instead, he's saying, repent, produce this fruit in keeping with this repentance, agreeing with God that his way is better. 
And so John, he actually gets even more and more gritty with his details. And uh, if we keep reading, we'll see that he, he starts naming names. He goes into specifics about the fruits of repentance. So if you want to turn back to your Bibles, we'll pick up in verse 10. So it says, the crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations, and be content with your pay. So John, like I said, he starts naming names, and admittedly this audience, they ask for it a little bit. But, you know, the Gospel of Luke, it's actually the only of the four Gospels that includes these details of John's dialogue. And many biblical scholars, they conclude that Luke gives these details because he has a focus on justice. Luke wants there to be uh, this radical selflessness practiced among believers where people are in right relationships with one another. And you see that from that very first statement where he's encouraging your everyday person to share his or her possessions with the needy. Then he kind of turns from from the personal and and goes more to the systems of power in that day. So he looks at the tax collectors. And some of you, you may know this, but tax collectors were hated in the ancient Near East, uh, especially by the Jews, because they, they practiced dishonestly in their tax collection, and they also worked for the oppressive Roman government. And so if you think about the Jews being oppressed by the Romans and their own people, they take from them, give to the government, and also skim some off the top for themselves. So John, he, he straight up tells them, stop these scams, stop this scheming. Then he moves towards the soldiers, another position of, of power, but also really low wages in the ancient Near East. And since these soldiers, they didn't make much money, they would often resort to intimidation, to blackmail, to extortion as a little bit of a side hustle. So John, he also tells them, stop doing this, cut this out. And he's urging very clearly towards this repentance, turning to God and surrender and allowing him to take control. And as we read this, maybe you see this and we think about confrontation and we wonder how can, how can John, how can he bring this up so boldly, so clearly, with zero room for ambiguity? Like, doesn't he worry that these tax collectors, that they're going to take advantage of him next? Or doesn't he worry that these soldiers will try to silence him by force? Well, as we, as we think about that, as we wonder that, uh, we were reminded in the next few verses just exactly how pure John's relationship with God is. The very next verse, we'll see how connected he is with the Lord. And verse 15, it says, Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptized you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am so much greater that I'm not even worthy to, to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So these listeners, they start speculating whether or not John is the Messiah, but he doesn't validate these musings. He doesn't even entertain it for a second. Instead, he swiftly takes the eyes of these listeners off of himself and points them towards Jesus, who is coming soon. And we don't 
quite grasp the magnitude of, of verse 16 today in our current cultural context, but in historic Judaism, rabbis, they had their disciples, and their, their disciples often did these acts of service for them. But the rabbinic code, it specified that no disciple would ever have to untie the sandal straps of his teacher. But here we see John, he says that he's not even worthy to do the most menial task for Jesus. It's this humble posture before the Lord where he's so clearly bowing down to him. And I think through John's words and his actions, we see that those bold conversations that John had with his audience, these bold conversations, they start with a humble submission. Bold conversations, they start with humble submission. Admitting to God that He knows better, even when we don't agree. Understanding our role as the creature and God as the Creator. Bold conversations, they start with humble submission. And I think that when we do submit to the Lord, He assures us that we can trust Him. He assures us that He protects us. He assures us that we're covered. And that gives us the strength and the security to live differently, to, to think, act, talk differently than the pervading wisdom of our society. Bold conversations start with humble submission. So I don't know if, if anybody listening, either at home or uh, in the crowd, if you don't know what you believe about Jesus, if you're, you're still not sure, that's okay. You know, I just want to say I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you're getting into God's Word with us. I would just encourage you maybe today, take that time to even have a bold conversation with God, to just lay it all out before him, your disappointments and your doubts, your frustrations. I promise you he can handle that. And also having that bold conversation that says, Lord, I need you. I can't my own. I'm helpless. Being able to say that before God. Bold conversations start with humble. And for, for believers, I think, you know, I'd encourage you not just to be open to bold conversations with others, like we see with John the Baptizer, but also being open to bold conversations from others. Because I've just noticed that confession is such a vital part to understanding the way of the Lord, to being made more like Christ. Um, I think that God can use other believers to really speak that wisdom into us. It's bold conversations. It starts with humble submission. And as I think about this and what this looks like with believers, uh, I'm always reminded of this anytime you see some famous Christian pastor fall, any sort of scandal comes to light. Uh, I also think specifically just about a couple of tragedies in the news within the past few months. Two occurrences that happened back in March, actually, makes me think about this truth. I'm reminded of uh, this high school in Oklahoma, women's high school basketball game. The announcer he's announcing thinks his mic is off and he starts to demean these young women with racial slurs. And a couple days later, he releases this statement that's pretty pitiful and tries to use his Christian faith to justify it without really admitting any wrong. I can't help but wonder, where were the bold conversations from believers in his life? What could have happened? What, what belief systems could have been uprooted if believers are having those bold conversations? That same month, I'm reminded of in Atlanta where a man commits a hate crime, shoots up three spas, killing six Asian women. This is a man who was a member of a church, 
His testimony circulated online three years earlier. And I have to ask, where were those bold conversations? What prejudices could have been exposed and incinerated had those believers initiated? Now, I know all of you here who call yourself a Christian, that's due in part towards someone taking a step to have that conversation with you. I want to celebrate that, you know, especially if you've been able to have those conversations with others and point people towards Christ. I mean, I think back to my own life where I've benefited from this. You know, I feel like I do need to share something personal because it's easy to highlight flaws in other believers. This actually goes back to my 21st birthday. I like to share this story with my college students. Stick with me here. So, made some poor decisions, consumed, and ended up drunk on Franklin Street, stumbling over myself, not completing sentences, falling over myself, and ultimately throwing up in a trash can outside of the restaurant that's now known as Kechula. It wasn't Kechula back then. And better yet, this all happened in broad daylight. It was in the middle of the afternoon. And at the time, the guy who worked with crew who was mentoring me, he had my job that I have now. I remember a couple days later, that next week, he confronted me about it. And I have no idea how he found out about this, but I can say from the other side that word goes around quick in campus ministry circles. So that might have something to do with it. But he sat me down and he asked me about it very gently, very graciously, very kindly. But at the time, I think I felt kind of offended. I got a little defensive. Like, doesn't everybody do this on their 21st birthday? What's the big deal here? But I, I think just I'm so grateful that he, he cared about me enough, loved me enough. Eight years later, I can see that care to, to highlight some of these temptations with peer pressure, with uh, caring about one of the guys that he addressed with me that first week. And he's someone who was such a pivotal example in my life and a, a huge reason why I'm still in ministry today. And I'm just grateful. I know that he was humbly submitted to the Lord, willing to have these bold conversations. So as we draw our time to a close this morning, I want to read one more passage, a few last words from John the Baptizer. So this comes in the Gospel of John, again, chapter 3. Um, if you want to turn there again, this, la- this is the last one on the outline. So it's John three twenty nine through 30. It says, It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. So what John is saying here is he's he's comparing Jesus to the groom, the church to the bride. And he's just that friend who shares in that joy, shares in that glory. And that's what God calls us into today. You know, he has a redemptive plan for the world. Uh, He's redeeming creation even now. He's redeeming injustices now. He's redeeming spiritual life now. And he just invites us into this plan where we are allowed to help as, as we give eternal life both now and in the future. So that's what submission looks like. Him becoming greater, us becoming less. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the foundation of your word, the foundation of your truth. Thank you that you did die on the cross for us, bringing us forgiveness, and now we get to join you in your work of reconciliation. Lord, I pray that we would humbly submit to you and allow you to control our words, our actions, our conduct, Jesus. Um, Lord, I pray that over everybody here today. Uh, We bless you. We praise your name. Amen.